welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Helper. And I'm Aaron Maté. And we are here to pump you up. Every time I do this show, I'm not going to lie, every time I do it, it pops into my head. So Really? Every yeah, time? Basically, yeah. Wow. It's the I'm blank and I'm Y, you know, Hans yeah, and Ron, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 For people pump. who don't know it, that yeah. it was a skit on SNL in the late 80s, early 90s, featuring Dana Carvey and what, Kevin Nealon. Was that Kevin Nealon, yeah. 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 Great skit. Great skit. And they were like, I guess, Austrian or German bodybuilders. Hilarious. And they're like, I'm Hans and I'm Franz and we are here to pump you up. No. So, yeah. And SNL, for people who may not know, is Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and Saturday Night Live, for people who may not know, because I don't think anyone watches it, is a show on NBC uh, late Saturday nights. Used to be a real thing. It used did to be you, a thing. Did yeah. you watch it ever? Like of regularly? Course, of course, of course. Yeah. Speaking of SNL, I went to a live taping of a dress rehearsal. So I'm not sure if that's a live taping. It's a dress rehearsal like right before they do it. It's that night. Uh-huh. So it's not a live taping. Forget the live taping part. It's just a dress rehearsal. They probably do tape it, but it's not live on television. Anyway, I went and I saw the Cranberries. Uh, and George Clooney was the host that night. And I went backstage with my friend. I was in eighth grade. I remember my friend, I went to school with someone who's had a parent involved in SNL. And she was like, oh, I want to see the Cranberries this weekend. You want to go see the Cranberries with me at SNL? At Saturday Night Live. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Who's the host? And she's like, this guy named George Clooney. I'm like, uh, George Clooney, he's on ER. She's like, oh, is he the hot guy? I'm like, yeah. So we went, we went backstage. I have to find it, but both of us got a signed photo of George Clooney. He gave each of us a signed photograph of himself, like a very dramatic 1940s kind of headshot. And it said to my, he wrote to my friend, um, to blank best wishes. And he wrote to me, to Katie with love. Damn, you got love. I got love. Wow. So, I would be livid if I were a, the friend who invited me yeah and my friend got with love and i got best wishes i know but some things i mean you just i understand of course why she would hate me she didn't i think she was very mature about it she realized that there was something between me and george that didn't exist between her and george yeah and you know heartache heartbreak all of that you just take it in life so well let's get to it let's get to it all right so so we have our four basic food groups. Um, I got Democrats suck this week, and boy, was a lot to go through. And please know that this is a mere sampling, uh, a mere um, tasting, uh, a schmear only of the many examples that we had to choose from. So the House voted to approve a $40 billion aid package for Ukraine, and it was an overwhelming vote. It was 368 to 57. Uh, weeks after lawmakers overwhelmingly approved $13.6 billion in emergency aid for the war effort. That total, roughly $53 billion over two months, goes beyond what President Biden requested and is poised to amount to the largest foreign aid package to move through Congress in at least two decades. 
Uh, it also comes at a time when the two parties have been unable to reach agreement to invest in domestic programs. They include the extension of a tax credit that pulled millions of American children out of poverty and even a pandemic response package to control the spread of the coronavirus as Republicans and some Democrats raise concerns that such spending could exacerbate inflation and increase the federal deficit. So that is uh, from the New York Times. Now, here's what I think was interesting and I want to highlight in Democratic and Democrat suckage. So uh, Biden actually made the interesting move to decouple this uh, aid from uh, COVID-19 aid. So uh, he, he at first recommended that lawmakers attach a COVID-19 aid to the package uh, after being but but he had a change of heart. OK, so. He was, quote, informed by congressional leaders in both parties that such an addition would slow down action on the urgently needed Ukrainian aid. We cannot afford delay in this vital war effort. Hence, I am prepared to accept these two measures move separately so that the Ukrainian aid bill can get to my desk right away. And if we could just go to I posted a Ken Klippenstein uh, tweet. So this is from April, and it was released by the Biden administration from the White House government, the government uh, briefing room. Fact sheet, Biden administration underscores urgent need for additional COVID-19 response funding and the severe consequences of congressional inaction. Okay, now move forward, and we have a uh, statement from Biden. Previously, I had recommended that Congress take overdue action on much-needed funding for COVID-19 for COVID treatments, vaccines, and tests as part of the Ukraine supplemental bill. However, I have been informed by congressional leaders in both parties that such an addition would slow down action on the urgently needed Ukraine aid, a view expressed strongly by several congressional Republicans. We cannot afford delay in this vital war effort. Hence, I'm prepared to accept that these two measures move separately so that the Ukrainian aid bill can get to my desk right away. I have some thoughts on this, but honestly, they were captured very well and very eloquently and thoughtfully by Caitlin Johnstone. So I'm just going to read what she tweeted, which was all Americans need to really deeply ingest the fact that their government is currently decoupling COVID relief funding from Ukraine proxy war funding because it wants to make sure that it's Ukraine proxy war funding actually passes really sit with what that says about everything which uh, really does capture exactly where the Democrats are, kind of perfectly. Well, well, both parties are, but the Democrats without exception and the Republicans with some exception, as we'll talk about shortly. But the fact that there's political will behind arming a proxy war, not as much behind saving the lives of Americans, just says it all. No one ever asks where we, how are we going to pay for it when it comes to war, but they do ask how are we going to pay for it when it comes to health care, child credit tax, child tax credit, basically anything that has to do with the economic or uh, physical well-being of people, of anyone in the 99%, sorry, we can't pay for that. But if it's about uh, enriching the arms industry or the 1%, there's always money available there's always money in the what is it in the banana stand thank you there's always money in the banana stand that bill you talked about that just passed 40 billion more dollars for the ukraine proxy war on top of the billions that have already been allocated zero democrats voted against that all of them voted for including the entire squad you can't find one democrat that doesn't want to spend 
another $40 billion on a catastrophic proxy war that could very well threaten nuclear Armageddon if things escalate to where they could go. It's uh, the fact you can't even find one Democrat voting in opposition speaks to how far to the right on war, especially if it involves Russia, the Democratic Party has gotten. And it's like this show, Katie, it's like every week we're just slowly documenting how the country is going crazy. When we do Monday morning, all these Sunday news shows, which reflect the views and agendas of the establishment, zero dissent allowed on war. Just this week, we showed that CBS's Face the Nation essentially did an infomercial via an interview with the CEO of Lockheed Martin. And this is Congress doing its part because that's where the majority of this money goes. It doesn't go towards uh, helping Ukrainian civilians. It goes towards weapons that benefit arms manufacturers and make them a lot of money. And no, no dissent from the Democrats. They're seeding the anti-war rhetoric However disingenuous it is when it comes from Republicans, they're ceding that to the Republicans. They're basically right. telling the Republicans, you know, to whatever extent anti-war sentiment exists in this country when it comes to the most dangerous situation in the world today, the Ukraine proxy war, we're going to give that to MAGA Republicans. Right. We're going to abandon that. Traditionally, anti-war sentiment, the idea that we should be spending money on domestic problems and helping our own citizens and not war. That's been the Democrats, or at least that's been the demand of some Democrats. Now that's completely disappeared. It's being handed over as a gift to Republicans. Right. It's wrong morally, ethically, um, I mean, in my opinion, but it's also very stupid strategically because as you pointed out before, Aaron, Trump very cleverly, disingenuously weaponized anti-war sentiment uh, ran against you know, the military industrial complex, obviously he uh, did insane things with it, but, uh, and was not at all consistent, but there is an anti-war, there's a hunger for disengagement from war. And the Democrats are definitely not uh, feeding that hunger, if you will. They're not feeding them at all. No economic relief, no baby formula, not feeding them at all. And they're not feeding them metaphorically. Yeah. Politically, it's making crazy Republicans look sane. That's what the Democrats are doing. Let's play a clip, actually. We have Jamie Raskin, progressive Democrat, responding to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene has said all kinds of nutty things. Yes, but right now, stuff. people like Jamie Raskin are making her look sane when it comes to the most dangerous issue in the world right now, which is the Ukraine proxy war. Uh, here's a formula for the destruction of democracy, repeating Putin's propaganda and disinformation and appeasing imperialist assaults on sovereign nations. And that came after Marjorie Taylor Greene talked about how we should be spending our money on baby formula and not giving billions of dollars to Ukraine proxy war. And also, by the way, this bill contains a provision that gives an unspecified amount of money to the CIA. So we don't even know how much the CIA gets or even what it's for, but the CIA just gets it. And Marjorie Taylor Greene criticized that Jamie Raskin is essentially accusing her of being a Putin propagandist. That's the state right now of the Democratic Party for the cause of a catastrophic proxy war, making nutty Republicans look sane. Right. And that's because, by the way, not that there's that much coverage of this, but there is a baby formula shortage right now. Yeah. And that should be, if you care about your own citizens, problems like that should be a priority. Right. I mean, it's no big deal. It's just literally feeding babies. So... They're not they don't ha- they don't have very strong uh, voting block. They don't really turn out for the vote. 
So I yeah. understand why they're not catering to the baby lobby, the baby block. Well, that's the Democrats suck. All right. So for Republicans suck, we have uh, a similar theme. Sure, yes, Democrats are going crazy, but on war, Republicans are just as crazy. And the shining example of that is Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina speaking on Fox News. Braden, but if you if you don't understand this, that if Putin's still standing after all this, then the world's going to be a very dark place. China's going to get the wrong signal and we'll have a mess on our hands in Europe for decades to come. So let's take out Putin by helping Ukraine. All right. So you're saying that that's how this ends, that Putin is removed. Uh, is there any way? There's no off ramp. There is no off ramp. No off-ramp. So let me tell you why there's no off-ramp. The Ukrainians are not going to give the East to Putin uh, to, to stop the war. They're going to fight for every inch of their territory. If we push the Ukrainians to give up half the country, then Putin wins. If we back off prosecuting Putin as a war criminal, all the laws on the books become a joke. If we don't get this right, China will certainly invade Taiwan. There is no off-ramp in this war. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. And I hope and pray and do everything everything in my power to make sure Ukraine wins. And Putin is in charge of a state sponsor, state sponsor of terrorism. That designation needs to be given uh, to Russia. He's earned that designation. We need to pour it on when it comes to helping Ukraine. So usually when you're a sane person and you see a war going on, your position is, OK, what is the off ramp and what is this? What is the resolution that both sides could agree to? Because the alternative is the war just goes on and everyone kills each other. More people die. A crazy person like Lindsey Graham openly declares there is no off ramp. He does not want diplomacy at all. And note that part of his reason includes somehow that if Russia wins, then China will be right. emboldened. What does the Ukraine Russia war have any have to do with China and Taiwan? Lindsey Graham doesn't think the like domino a normal effect, person. The domino effect that uh, Eisenhower, despite his very good stern warning about the military industrial complex refer to yeah Cuba, right i mean everything to them Latin is just America. basically like a view through the prism of a mafia boss where if like no. if someone gets out of line over here and defies us here then someone else might get the idea elsewhere and defy us there we can't have that so we have to crush opposition everywhere and in the case of ukraine and russia that means continuing to fuel a disastrous war and so who ultimately will pay the price for a never-ending war it's ukrainians it's ukrainians will pay right. the price but lindsey graham doesn't care because for him, it's all through the prism of what serves his agenda of overthrowing Vladimir Putin. Because that's the other thing he says, that Vladimir Putin has to go. <laughs> that's how this war ends, is regime change yeah. in Moscow. It's basically a recipe for threatening nuclear Armageddon. Because as U.S. officials warn, if Russia feels as if its vital security is at stake, it will use nuclear weapons. Lindsey Graham doesn't care. He's willing to risk all that for the sake of his regime change goals. It's ridiculous. But again, I am appreciative that increasingly people are saying what was the quiet part out loud, which is that this is a proxy war and this is all about how we can weaken Putin as opposed to how we can end the war. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to keep the lofty rhetoric going forever about how this is all just a fight against autocracy. We're doing this to defend democracy. Eventually, you have to admit the truth. It comes out and that's what they're doing now. Yeah. And for doing it so scarily, Lindsey Graham is this week's example of why Republicans, Republicans suck. suck. We almost got that. And now we're going to go to another food group, which is, of course, the isn't that weird. And for isn't that weird, I have an interesting 
beautiful story. I'm going to read from the New York Post. It was one wedding and a funeral. Another callback to the 1990s when we saw a movie out called uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. One man, uh, one man proposed to one woman at one wedding and one funeral. A South African pastor is being excoriated online after filming himself proposing to a grieving woman in the middle of her father's funeral, mere feet from the deceased's coffin. So let's get a let's let's see this video. I want to see. I want to hear your thoughts on this, Aaron. Proposing the deceased daughter, right? Wiping the tears there. So what we see is a, a bunch of people at a funeral. There's a woman sitting down. The man who's the pastor apparently is on his knees. He gives her a wedding ring. Um, and it looks like she accepts. I'm going to say she accepts. She takes it. Uh, and there's some crying out, although it's not clear if the crying out is shock, is um, encouraging crying out, is discouraging crying out. What do you think, Aaron? You know, I'm not sure if I think that this is disrespectful because, you know, in some cultures, funerals are actually seen as a celebration of life. Right. And not a purely somber occasion. And, you know, celebrating the, the life of the deceased. And what if the deceased father actually wanted the daughter to marry that pastor, you know? Right. That's very right. Maybe he thought he was honoring the father. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And so a funeral, I, I guess, I mean, maybe I'm drawing too big of, of a point here from this, but it's like a funeral doesn't have to be a purely sad occasion. It also right. could be a celebration. And so maybe this pastor is, is proposing to the daughter in furtherance of the father's legacy. I don't know. I mean, it could be totally off base, but. I don't necessarily see it right. without knowing the details. I don't know if that's a sign yeah. of disrespect. Yeah. I don't know if it's a sign of disrespect either. I think it's fair to say it's weird, but it could be weird in a good way. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's my stance. Right. That's, that's your stance and you're sticking to it. Yeah. I think so. I think that um, it's thinking outside the box, mm -hmm. thinking, proposing near the box, proposing near the funeral box, which is what I'll just call the coffin uh, is thinking outside the box. Uh, I do think that uh, it really depends on on the context, the kind of relationship they had. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe he had wanted to propose in front of the father and he wasn't able to uh, to do it. So anyway, it's gone viral on TikTok and people have very strong opinions on it. But I think that we shouldn't be too judgmental. I hear I that. that. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. And it's nice to have some good news because I'm sure the person's sad. Yeah. At her father's. Even if even if they're celebrating his life, there's going to be some sadness at, at a funeral. Yeah. So maybe it was a nice way uh, for her to find some joy that sad day. Well, congrats to the newly engaged couple. Yeah. Congrats to the newly engaged couple. Yeah. yeah. And also condolences on. On her father. Right. Her father's loss. To yeah. her and the whole family. Yeah. It's, it's nice. One of the nice things about being a pastor is like he could actually maybe. Oh, it would have been cool if he just married them. Like then it could have been a funeral and, and a wedding. A, and a wedding. Yeah. 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 The only question there is as a pastor, are you abusing your authority and right. a, you know, presiding over a funeral and then also 
you know, does that violate some kind of protocol? I don't Maybe. know. That's a tough, that's that that's for pastors to work out. Right. That's past. That's a question we'll leave to the pastors. Yeah. yeah. Although yeah. honestly, on the list of crimes committed by pastors, that would be pretty low on my list. Great point. Yeah. That's a great yeah. point. All right. What do we got for? Isn't that terrible? All right. So for isn't that terrible? This week we have a, yet another gender reveal party going wrong. This happens a lot, right? Where these debacles happen at gender reveal parties. And this one is in the UK. And the headline is gender reveal party evacuated after smoke bomb stunt goes wrong. And let's watch what happened. It's like a war zone. It's Wait, like a war it was zone. like a war zone with pink. It's a war zone with pink smoke. There's something very incongruous about how the festive color and the fact that people are fleeing. <laughs> that they can't breathe. Yeah. 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 I mean the pink smoke makes it an unusual looking war zone, but still it's it's scary. You know, yeah. that's a harrowing moment. It is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's in a way, it's very, it's 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 kind of a woke warning. It's like, why do we have to focus on the binary? Why do we mm. have to accept the binary? Mm-hmm. But these gender reveal parties, they're mm-hmm. it's literally dangerous, yeah. That is the message being yeah. sent by the yeah. Yeah, smoke. That's yeah. a great point. Stop yeah. the binaries, everybody. Yeah, drop it, yeah. Yeah, or else you're going to get smoked out. And that is this week's Isn't That Terrible? Well, we're so excited to bring you this week's guest. Um, Alan McLeod is a senior staff writer and a podcast producer for Mint Press News. He's written uh, two books about the media, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting, and Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. He's also contributed to FAIR, The Guardian, Salon, Jacobin, and more. And make sure that you follow him on Twitter at Alan R. McLeod. All right, let's go to Alan McLeod. Welcome, Alan. We're so happy to have you joining us. Alan McLeod, how are you? Great to be with you. I'm doing really well. Great. Uh, Last week, as viewers and listeners know, we had on Minara Adley, and she is, I guess, your boss at Mint Press. And she talked about the way PayPal had gone after Mint Press, and they did the same to you. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because we kind of talked about what happened to Mint Press uh, and you're a journalist at Mint Press, so we wanted to look at some of the articles that Mint Press puts out, which are pres- presumably part of why they are uh, PayPal is going after Mint Press. Wanted to actually start because one of the things that you do so well, Alan, is you do a lot of really great media analysis, and you do a lot of it on Twitter. You have, of course, doing your articles, but you're really good at screenshots and just capturing a lot of the media malpractice that is so common. And there's some really uh, terrible news that just came out about the killing of Shireen Abu Akhle. Uh, could you tell us about what happened and also how the media has been presenting this? And we also have some screenshots of your tweets that we can show. Yeah, sure. So Shireen Abu Akhle is a really well-respected Palestinian Christian journalist who, um, as we're speaking just a few hours ago, went to Janine 
the refugee camp there to cover an Israeli defense forces raid on the refugee camp. Well, she was uh, she was shot in the head um, by the IDF, and she was in a group of journalists. She was clearly marked as a press. She was wearing a bulletproof vest, which said press on it. She was wearing a helmet. And her and a group of journalists were fired on by the IDF. Uh, she was fatally struck in the head um, by the IDF, and she was pronounced dead at hospital. So it seems like one more uh, journalist uh, added to the list of many who have been executed by the Israeli state for carrying out their journalistic activities. Uh, you might remember a couple of years ago, Yasser Murtaja, uh, he was a photojournalist who was uh, shot by the IDF while, um, while covering the Great March of Return. And, you know, for his travel, he was even labeled a terrorist by the uh, Los Angeles Times, even though he was accredited with Al Jazeera, just like uh, Shireen was. Um, and, you know, if we go back to last May, we actually saw the Israeli government uh, bombing the Al Jazeera building in Gaza City. So this is, uh, you know, just one of the, just the latest of a long line of assaults on uh, the press that the Israeli government have been doing. But when you actually look at how the corporate press in the West has been showing this, it's been absolutely outrageous. You know, uh, they've been using their favorite word clash, which uh, is this beautiful word which allows people to talk about violence without apportioning any guilt or responsibility. So we see things like um, the Associated Press saying things like, you know, Shireen Abu Akleh was killed by gunfire during a clash between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, completely, you know, ignoring the fact that Al Jazeera has already come out and said the Israeli government killed her. The journalists that she was with, some of whom are in hospital as well, trying to recover from their wounds, saying we were clearly fired upon by the Israeli government. And yet, yeah, I mean, we're being told that this is some sort of, you know, clash that's, you know, we don't even know what's going on, even though, you know, the Israeli government has more or less come out and admitted it. Um, Naftali Bennett said, you know, we need a full inquiry. But in fact, a IDF spokesperson said, he was basically trying to smear uh, Shireen uh, by saying that she was armed with a camera. I mean, what's that sort of, you know, what's that sort of uh, language? You know, it's quite clear what they were thinking. So, yeah, I mean, the New York Times uh, had an absolutely reprehensible headline today, which, which read, Al Jazeera journalist is killed during clashes in West Bank. The circumstances surrounding the fatal shooting of Shireen Abu Akleh, Palestinian-American journalist, were not immediately clear. This is complete whitewashing of what has actually happened, but unfortunately, it's par for the course for the media now. So I'm, I'm shocked, but not surprised, frankly. Right. Shocked, disturbed, but not surprised. Um, let's just because this is getting so little attention and because everyone uh, in the Western media basically is going to be presenting this uh, or whitewashing this for as long as possible, if not forever. I thought it'd be useful to look at this clip from an eyewitness uh, describing the moment that uh, she was shot and killed. What happened was we were waiting for our colleagues to enter the refugee camp. At the point where the Israeli army was present, we chose a point that did not have any confrontations between the youth and the militants. We got to a point where we waited for Shireen to put on all her safety gear. She then reached us and we moved, we moved a few meters. We exposed ourselves to the army and the passers-by that we were press. We arrived and within seconds, there was the first shot. I told them 
that we were being targeted, we were being shot at. I turned and found Shireen on the ground. I found Shatha shielding herself by a tree and screaming. I turned and found Shireen on the ground in the first few seconds with the shooting. We were telling each other we were being shot at. The shooting continued for more than three minutes on the teams that were there. Ali was injured. He was able to cross the street and get to a point of safety. The shooting continued. I took refuge under a staircase in the cement factory. The shooting continued. Shatha, the shooting was targeting while she was standing under the tree and we could not provide first aid to Shireen. The youth came to us, the ones that were in the street were trying to pull Shireen out. We're also shot at. Whenever anyone moved forward, they were shot at. That's what an eyewitness who was a member of the press uh, recounted. And uh, that's not at all like the sanitized version. In fact, um, uh, Alan, you captured some of the headlines. You you captured an AP tweet that says, Breaking, Shireen Abu Akleh, a journalist for the Al Jazeera network, was killed by gunfire in the occupied West Bank, the Palestinian Health Ministry says. The shooting happened during an Israeli army raid in Jenin. Yeah, exactly. This use of the passive voice is a classic way in which uh, media um, allow uh, responsibility to just uh, float up in the air for any sort of violence. It's often used for police. It's often used for the military as well. And really, when it comes to Israel-Palestine, we see this so often. So often the headlines are things like, you know, a controversial journalist is killed by bullet fired from gun from IDF uh, from, you know, IDF um, uh, rifle uh, between, you know, in a clash between um, settlers and Hamas or something crazy like that, whereby the sort of uh, guilt or responsibility is just completely whitewashed. And this is just one more example of this, frankly. Ali Abu Nima has an interesting tweet about this. He, of course, uh, Ali Abu Nima is uh, director of Electronic Intifada, and he has a great tweet about this. So he captures the uh, vile hypocrisy. He tweet. He has two screenshots from Ned Price, who is the uh, uh, spokesperson from the State Department, uh, who tweeted out, we are horrified that journalists and filmmakers, non-combatants, have been killed and injured in Ukraine by Kremlin forces. We extend condolences to all those affected by this horrific violence. This is yet another gruesome example of the Kremlin's indiscriminate actions. So that's how he responds to uh, one death. And here he is responding to this one. We are heartbroken by and strongly condemn the killing of American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh in the West Bank. The investigation must be immediate and thorough, and those responsible must be held accountable. Her death is an affront to media freedom everywhere. Yeah, unfortunately, I think this is another case of uh, worthy victims. Frankly, if you're a journalist and you get killed, uh, the amount of coverage or outrage that you receive uh, in the media is determined exactly by two things. Who you worked for, number one and who was the, the uh, group killing you, number two. So in the first example, uh, if a Western journalist works for Fox News or the Washington Post and is killed by the uh, Russian army in Ukraine, that will elicit outrage all around the world. But if you work for Al Jazeera or Press TV or some small alternative media outlet, and you're killed by an ally of the United States like the Israeli government, frankly, that's gonna be old news very quickly. I want to show some more examples of this disingenuous language that we're talking about, because when it comes to how the U.S. media covers Israel, they've had to adopt this 
framing so many times because Israel Israel commits so many unspeakable atrocities. And so outlets like the New York Times have to find ways to minimize them. And the way they do it is it's like you have to almost admire the creativity that they come up with because it's so disingenuous. Let's go to the first example. This is from 2014 when Israel massacred a group of Palestinians who were watching the World Cup uh, on a beach in Gaza during the 2014 Israeli assault on Gaza. So this is from 2014. Missile at beachside Gaza cafe finds patrons poised for World Cup. So you got that? An Israeli missile hit a cafe where some Palestinians were watching the World Cup. And the Times frames it as if basically the missile and these dead Palestinians just basically met up to watch the World Cup together. That's what it sounds like. So instead of saying Israeli slaughters, Palestinians watching World Cup, it's about some kind of rendezvous. That's the way it sounds between the missiles and these innocent Palestinians. What a beautiful word, fines, isn't it? Fines, yeah. Yeah, They just love each other. I would say somebody arrest that missile because it's clearly in the wrong. And it's not like I expect slaughter. Okay, so you said slaughters, but to be realistic about it, obviously they're not going to say that. But I mean, you think kills? No, I, what am I saying? You wouldn't expect that. But but even just statement of fact, right? Like even if you want to attribute it to the missile and not the Israelis or the IDF, it's just incredible that they can't even bring themselves to describe it as a fatal meetup. Heaven forbid, imagine somebody attacked the New York Times newsroom. Okay, they pulled a gun there and they shot. So imagine the Times saying, Magnum 57 bullet finds New York Times journalists inside newsroom. I mean, that's, I mean, uh, I mean, of course, like anyone who used that, uh, that wording would be a sicko. You'd be basically trying to justify or whitewash an attack on journalists. But Palestinians are so dehumanized and Israeli violence is so whitewashed that this is the kind of stuff they come up with. Another example is from the Great March of Return in 2018. This is when thousands of Palestinians in Gaza in a bid to break the blockade, the medieval siege of Gaza, and to demand their rights, including the right to return to their ancestral homes inside what is now Israel, they were massacred by Israeli forces armed with US weapons. And this is how the New York Times reported it back then. The Palestinian protest was dubbed the Great Return March, but the organizers were vague about plans to cross the border, keeping a jittery Israel guessing. So after Israel guns down you know, thousands of Palestinians, killing hundreds, wounding thousands more, totally unarmed people who are just trying to do what Palestinians have been lectured to do for so many decades, being told to just be nonviolent, they get gunned down for it by Israel with U.S. weapons. The Times basically pins the blame on organizers who are vague about their plans and then Israel just being jittery and gunning down civilians, Israel just being jittery. That's the message from The New York Times. My heart goes out to the jittery Israelis. Yeah, like if only maybe Israel had some ADD medication or something, or some, right. or, or or some right. medication to calm their jitters. Right, they wouldn't have gunned down so many Palestinian civilians. It's so, yeah. but this is how, this is what they have to come up with to justify the unthinkable. It's really, I mean, and, and just going back to the contrasting uh, responses from Ned Price. This was in response to the tragic death of Brent Renault, who's an American journalist and filmmaker. But he was so sure in his response 
We are horrified that journalists and filmmakers, non-combatants, have been killed and injured in Ukraine by Kremlin forces. We extend condolences to all those affected by this horrific violence. This is yet another gruesome example of the Kremlin's indiscriminate actions versus calling in the Israeli case. The investigation must be immediate and thorough, and those responsible must be held accountable. So, again, you have two journalists killed, and in one case, there's no question that it was Kremlin forces even though they didn't, that was the same day. It wasn't even clear who, who shot um, Brent Renault. Uh, and in this case, we know that it was the IDF who did it. And yet in, in that case, there needs to be an investigation. The other case that, you know, it's stuff like that. People aren't even aware of this because if you don't know that the, that Ned Price doesn't know this and you don't know that because the media doesn't say we don't know this, you don't even realize you can't, you're not aware. I mean, that's the scariest thing about media bias is that it requires so much research to even realize the bias. Yeah, you can't even pin this on American versus uh, Palestinian because Shireen Abu Akli is actually an American citizen as well. Right. So we can't even you know talk about this as just being, oh, some foreigner got killed and this is an American. It's not that at all. I mean, it really shows you if you're serving US state power or Western power, you will be treated well. And if you're trying to undermine that and manufacture dissent rather than consent, you will be treated as an enemy of the state. This reminds me a lot of uh, an article that you wrote that was really quite stunning. Uh, it was uh, from Mint Press called It's Different, They're White. Media ignore conflicts around the world to focus on Ukraine. And it reminds me of the distinction distinction that you just referenced, uh, guilt, uh, worthy and unworthy victims. Can you talk about worthy and unworthy victims and where that uh, idea comes from? Yeah, sure. So it comes from uh, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky. Their seminal 1988 work, Manufacturing Consent, is one of the most read books in the social sciences and certainly in media studies. And together they really outline how the corporate Western media work. And one of the theories they came up with was uh, the theory of worthy victims. They were trying to compare and understand why certain uh, outrages, certain massacres, certain violent incidents get a lot of play in the press and some are completely ignored. You know, there are terrible violent things going on around the world all the time in most countries, but most of us never even hear about it. And what they came up with was basically this idea of worthy victims. And they said that basically it comes down to two things. If uh, who is doing the killing and uh, who is um, the victim in the situation. So if the group who is the aggressor, who is uh, doing the killing, is an official enemy state like the Soviet Union or Russia or China or North Korea, someone like that, then uh, that will be taken very seriously and given front page news. If it's um, the United States or its close allies like Saudi Arabia or Colombia or Israel, that will get far less attention. And secondly, who is the victim? If the victim is one of us, you know, a Westerner, somebody who's very important, a government official, that will get huge amounts of play. Whereas if it's somebody who's deemed like an enemy combatant or a terrorist or, you know, some anonymous brown person or, you know, whatever, that will never get any sort of play in uh, Western media. They actually compared in, um, in their book, Manufacturing Consent, they compared two uh, massacres that were going on at the same time. One in East Timor, where the Indonesian army, a US ally, was slaughtering hundreds of thousands of Timorese people. And one in Cambodia, where a US enemy, Pol Pot, 
was uh, slaughtering many of the, his uh, people as well. And what they found was is that Pol Pot became front page news, whereas uh, the Indonesian massacre of Timorese, uh, just as the cover, just as the violence was uh, reaching its crescendo, coverage in uh, corporate media dropped to literally zero. And so I kind of applied that uh, worthy victims framework to Ukraine. I compared the Russian invasion of Ukraine to the Saudi war on Yemen, the US uh, bombing of Somalia, and the Israeli airstrikes on Syria, all of which were happening at the same time. And I just went to Fox News, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and MSNBC, and counted how many stories they had on each. So on Russia's war on Ukraine, they had uh, nearly 1,300 stories in the weeks, in the days between February 21st and February 22nd. Uh, the US war on Somalia, they had only one story. Uh, the Israeli attack on Syria generated two stories. And the Saudi war on Yemen, which has killed probably in excess of 400,000 people now, there was zero coverage of that uh, across these five big outlets. And it really goes to show that um, two media outlets, uh, our lives aren't equal. Uh, our suffering isn't equal. If there's political capital to be made, out of uh, informing people about our suffering, that will be done. So Russia is clearly the bad guy in Ukraine, so that is given huge amounts of coverage. But when our allies like Saudi Arabia or Israel do similar things in places like Yemen or Syria, which are enemy countries, uh, the public is not invited to feel uh, embarrassment, shame, anger, or anything like that about that. Because in fact, the public doesn't even know about it because the media is doing its job in manufacturing consent for US government uh, objectives all around the world. And you can even apply the worthy versus unworthy victims comparison inside Ukraine itself. So in Ukraine, the worthy victims are Ukrainians who are killed by Russia the unworthy victims are the Ukrainians who are killed by Ukrainian forces. And those, the, you know, there's been a war going on in the Donbass for the last eight years. The UN figure is 13,000, 14,000. I don't know exactly how many are civilian or even how accurate that figure is, but that's the UN figure. And those Ukrainians who are killed uh, by the US armed Ukrainian government, we're not allowed to acknowledge them. We're not even really allowed to acknowledge that there's been a a war going on, or at least and the, that there were diplomatic options to end that war via the Minsk Accords. It's reported, but it's buried pretty, pretty consistently. Also, I just wanted to give people a chance to see uh, the visual representation of this uh, coverage. This is pretty stunning. You, you, this is what it looks like when um, the media uh, between February 21st and February 27, 2022, dedicates 1,298 reports to Ukraine, reports or articles, zero to Saudi attack on Yemen, one to the U.S. strike on Somalia, and two to the Israeli attack on Syria. Yeah, I mean, what I'm not saying is that we we certainly need to be covering the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. That's definitely worth doing. But the disparity with which media right. decide what to cover this really lays it bare. There is zero interest in looking at crimes of our governments or friendly governments around the world, especially if those uh, things they're doing, those atrocities are happening against uh, people we have deemed unworthy, like for instance, the Houthi rebels or the government of Syria, for instance. It takes a lot to sift through coverage and look at this. So people again, have no idea about, and, uh, about the disproportionate or inconsistent coverage or selective coverage. 
Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's so many terrible and wonderful things as well happening all around the world every day. How do big newspapers or TV shows decide what to cover? And ultimately, I think this book, uh, Manufacturing Consent, um, really answers that in a really concise way. It's not random what you see on your television. It is very, very, uh, everything is thought about very clearly and it's very precise. There's like a machine which all news goes through and if it hits one of these filters, it simply will not get to your TV screen or to your newspaper or to your radio show or wherever you get it. That's if you're using uh, corporate media. If you're using alternative media, maybe it's a different case. Yeah. And one more New York Times headline, uh, Shireen Abu Akleh, trailblazing Palestinian journalist, dies at 51. Sounds like she uh, she had cancer or something. Yeah. Not that she was hit in the head with a bullet and her right. head was taken off. Right. And let's compare that to Brent Renault, an American journalist, is killed in Ukraine. Right. In one case, the New York Times article in the headline, as it should, mentions that he's killed. In the other one, it's that she dies. And again, as you pointed out, Alan, I should make this clear. We're not I'm not and certainly you guys aren't either, but no one is condoning the deaths of civilians. No one is condoning the death of uh, Brent Renault at all. We're just showing that not all that all lives are not seen as equal by the U.S. media, the Western media, U.S. government, Western governments. It's really quite stunning. I mean, imagine a headline about the assassination of JFK that was titled JFK dies at 46. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> much what they're doing now to this Al Jazeera correspondent. Shifting gears a, li- a-, a little bit, you have some fascinating articles about TikTok uh, and the interesting people who are on the TikTok uh, board and have been hired by TikTok. Can you talk to us about that? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, that was great. That was awesome. Very knowledgeable reporter who's done a lot of really good work. And you can see he gives a window on how much effort it takes just to expose one media lie, whether it's about Ukraine or whether it's about the sources that the media is relying on to get its information about Ukraine. It just takes a lot of work. And Alan is one of the people who does that work. And that's presumably why PayPal is blocking payments yeah. to his outlet mid-press news. Right. He, he and he writes academic books, too. He's just a real uh, dedicated writer, researcher, does great stuff. I, I'm like, I, I kind of fan. It's funny the people I fangirl out on, but I kind of fangirl out on Alan McLeod. So you're a fan of academic writing? I guess. Well, yeah. I haven't read his books, so we'll see. I'm going to order them, though. I will order them. But he I just love how, how he collects all these screenshots. I'm just very impressed. I don't know. You can always rely on Alan's Twitter feed. I hear that. There's I always great that. tweets in the in the Alan McLeod Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah. Like. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Usefulidiots.substack.com to get all kinds of bonus content. Oh, yeah. You're going to really want to make sure that you join for, for this week's uh, Substack. It's going to be great. We talk a lot about... Well, let's just say we talk a lot about a Ukrainian outlet that you see a lot if you're online. And it may not be all that it appears to be. Mm -hmm. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. 
You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod and use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. <laughs>